During the last few weeks, we've looked at the sections in the Satipatthana Discourse on mindfulness of feelings and mindfulness of the mind. Each of these sections is followed by a refrain that is repeated throughout the discourse, throughout the sutta, after each particular set of instructions. And because it's repeated so often, I think 16 times altogether in the discourse, it's safe to assume that the Buddha was pointing out something that he wanted us to pay attention to. He was directing us with each set of instructions to the essential aspects of how we should practice them. So in the talks last year, um, we discussed in considerable detail uh, the meaning of the refrain. But after having just gone over the mindfulness of feelings, mindfulness of the mind, I wanted to highlight again those aspects of this refrain uh, which illuminate a bit how we should put these teachings into practice. So the first line of the refrain, these are the words of the Buddha. In this way, in regard to feelings, and then again it's repeated in regard to the mind, one abides contemplating feelings, contemplating the mind internally, one contemplates them externally, or one abides them contemplating both internally and externally. Okay, so that's the first first line of the refrain. There are many interpretations about what this actually means. What does internal mean? What does external mean? The interpretation that is commonly suggested and one that is applicable to all the four foundations of mindfulness is the one I'd like to discuss tonight. And that is internal refers to one's own experience. External refers to the experiences of others. And so, by the Buddha repeating, contemplate the feelings, contemplate the mind internally, externally, in both, he's pointing out the comprehensive nature of mindfulness practice. Our practice is to be aware of whatever there is, whether it's within ourselves, whether it's arising within others. And as we'll see, in the end, it goes beyond these divisions altogether. The division goes beyond the division of self or other. Contemplating feelings internally. This is reasonably obvious and what we discussed in the first two talks this year. We become aware of the pleasant feelings, the unpleasant ones, the neutral feelings. Both the worldly ones, those that are connected with sense contact, and the unworldly ones, those that are connected with meditative states. So we contemplate these feelings internally as they arise within ourselves pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. We become aware of our minds as they are conditioned by the different mental qualities or mental factors, as they're conditioned by the wholesome roots or the unwholesome roots. So we know the greedy mind, the angry mind, the deluded mind, the mind free of those. We know the concentrated mind, in the distracted mind, we know the liberated mind, the unliberated mind. This is what it means to contemplate the mind internally. So we've been working on this a lot, and I think this is probably pretty clear to you. But what does contemplating feelings and mind externally mean? And how can we apply that? How can we put it into practice? In different aspects of the teachings, the Buddha talks of insight by inference. 
or insight by induction. So just as an example of this kind of wisdom, if we put our hand in fire, you know, and it burns, we don't need to keep rediscovering the truth of this by touching the flame. After one time or two times or three times, we know by inference based on our particular experience that if we put our hand in the fire again, it will burn again. So that's inferential wisdom, inductive reasoning. This is the kind of insight, insight by inference, through which we can contemplate feelings externally, that is, contemplate the feelings of others We all have the experience, and it's pretty obvious at times, to know through a person's bodily expressions or through their words when they're experiencing something pleasant, when they're experiencing something painful. So we can pick up those signals from others. Then by inference, based on our own experience of pleasant feelings or painful feelings within ourselves, by inference we know, we understand, we have a pretty good idea of what that other person is feeling. And this is same, the same is true of different mind states. When we are mindful of them externally, that is, mindful of the arising moods, the arising emotions in other people. For example, we see someone who's angry, or we see someone who's sad, or loving, or greedy, or generous. The whole range of emotions that we might become mindful of in another person, by inference, based on our own experience of what these states are. We know what love feels like. We know what anger feels like. We know what greed feels like because we've experienced them internally. By inference, then, we can know to some extent and perhaps to a large extent what the other person is feeling. And when we can know this with mindfulness, then we're aware of the arising state in other people without reactivity, without judgment. So why is this important? Why did the Buddha very specifically and many times in this Satipatthana Sutta, many times he repeated Contemplate the body, contemplate feelings, contemplate the mind internally, contemplate it externally. So the Buddha is saying this and giving emphasis to it. We can see the importance of it when we notice the effect of being unmindful of feelings and mind states in ourselves. And this is what we've discussed over the last weeks when we are unmindful of a pleasant feeling that arises in us, what happens? The conditioned tendency with pleasant feeling is desire, is grasping, is wanting. We want to hold to it. The conditioned feeling, the conditioned response to unpleasant feeling when we're not mindful in ourselves is aversion. We don't like it. We want to get rid of it. The conditioned response to neutral feeling is delusion, ignorance. We're often unaware of it. The same process happens externally. And this gets very interesting for us to observe. When we're not mindful externally, that is, when we're not exercising mindfulness of the feelings and mind states, that arise in other people, 
those very feelings that are arising in other people can trigger similar reactions when we're not mindful. For example, pleasant feelings arising in others. If we're not mindful, if we're not paying attention, someone else's pleasant feelings could trigger envy, could trigger jealousy. I want to read something which is, I think, one of my very favorite descriptions of this. This was something uh, written by the writer Anne Lamott, where she was describing how difficult it is to deal with the triumphs of other writers, particularly if one of them happens to be a friend. So this is what she said. It can wreak just the tiniest bit of havoc with your self-esteem to find that you are hoping for small bad things to happen to this friend. She says, for say, her head to blow up. (laughs) That's being unmindful externally. (laughs) You know, we're aware of this pleasant feeling, happy feeling arising in the other person. And if we're unmindful, it can trigger something unwholesome in ourselves. Trigger envy, trigger jealousy. Likewise, when we become aware of painful feelings that arise in others, if we're not mindful, it might trigger grief, it might trigger sorrow, it might trigger denial. Sometimes it even triggers cruelty. I I had a very... uh, impressionable experience of this during my India days. You know, those of you who have been there know that the dogs in India are just in pitiful condition. You know, there's at least the ones that are just, you know, around the villages. It's not that they're people's pets. They're just around scrounging for food, really starving, often just covered with mange, often without any fur, very, very pitiful, pitiable condition. And it was just interesting to watch, you know, sometimes we'd be just sitting in a chai shop, a tea shop in the bazaar, and these dogs would come by. And a not uncommon tendency among people would be just to throw something at them to, you know, get rid of them, There weren't too many people that I could observe who were actually there and connecting to the suffering, connecting to the painful feelings that were in those animals. You know, it was unpleasant. You know, it was an unpleasant sight. It was an unpleasant situation. And so the unmindful condition tendency, get away, I don't want to see you. Don't come close. It was very rare that somebody would actually feed one of these dogs. So it was a a very, made a very strong impression on me. And of course, neutral feelings in others, when we're not mindful, just as in ourselves, can condition the same quality of delusion. We don't know what the other person is feeling. So what happens then when we make the effort, when we practice being mindful of feeling externally, as the Buddha suggests, when we become aware and mindful, oh, pleasant feeling has arisen in others, painful feeling has arisen in others, neutral feeling has arisen. When we bring the same degree of mindfulness to others as we do to ourselves, When we do that, when we practice in this way, it opens up the possibility either of just spontaneous wholesome states to arise within us or wholesome states that are prompted by some kind of reflection. So there are many examples of this, you know, that we can see both in our meditation practice and just in our lives. I had one particular situation. It was one of the times when I went to practice in Burma. 
And I went there, and one of, one of our friends had been there for about two or three years already, practicing in the monastery. So I went, and I was just busy from all the activity, you know, all the worldly activity I was engaged in. He was there two or three years, and of course, as soon as one saw him, it was clear he was enjoying a lot of pleasant, unworldly feelings. You know, it's just the calmness, the concentration, the stillness. Uh, And it was very interesting for me just to watch my mind. Because my initial reaction in, you know, after the kind of enjoyment of just meeting again and seeing him, my mind first went into this comparing mode. You know, comparing mode tinged with a little bit of envy. You know, he clearly was just kind of floating along in these beautiful meditative states. And I had just arrived there. My mind was, you know, restless and agitated, all the usual things. So it was interesting to see that. And then, because I became mindful of it, I could reflect, I became mindful of what he was feeling. And through reflection, and it didn't take long, began to cultivate that state of mudita, sympathetic joy, happiness in the happiness of others. And it was such a, such a beautiful shift to see that that's possible. When we're mindful of the feelings of others, as I say, either spontaneously or through reflection, wholesome states can arise within us. You know, similarly, we all have had the experience in our lives of going through something difficult, something painful. Maybe it's the circumstances in our lives, maybe it's some disease, maybe it's grief or sorrow. We've all had difficult, painful experiences. When we're mindful, when we are then with other people going through similar things, having similar feelings, it's easier for us to be mindful of those feelings, those painful feelings arising in the other person and feel compassion for them. Because by inference, we know what they're feeling, having gone through it ourselves. There's one story of this external mindfulness, mindfulness externally of feelings that inspires me a lot. At one of the Buddhist Christian conferences I was at, um, this was at Gethsemane Abbey in Kentucky, there were about uh, 25 Christian leaders, 25 Buddhist uh, teachers, And leading the Buddhist delegation to this conference was His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And there was a lot of talk and a lot of conversation, a lot of dialogue. Then at the very end of the conference, the abbot of Gethsemane, uh, this is a Trappist abbey, he was commenting on the conference, and he said that one of the most moving aspects of the conference was one day he was just walking in the hall, in the hallway, and he saw that the Dalai Lama had stopped in front of a statue of the Virgin Mary and was bowing to it. You know, the Dalai Lama didn't know anybody was around, and it was not, it was just a kind of a spontaneous expression of the Dalai Lama's respect and devotion. The abbot happened to be walking by and he saw that. And again, it's, it's this mindfulness of feelings externally. The abbot could know through his own experience of respect and devotion, you know, to some extent, what the Dalai Lama was expressing. And he said that that gesture, 
feeling the respect and devotion the Dalai Lama had in that moment, you know, for uh, Virgin Mary. That meant more, that communicated more than all the many words that had gone on in the conference. It was, it was like a direct transmission of a feeling. It, it was a communion of a feeling. And all of that is because there, in that moment there was mindfulness externally, mindfulness of what another person is feeling, what's arising. We can also learn a lot from those times when we're not mindful externally. When we're not mindful of the feelings and the mind states that are arising in others. But only that we become aware of what's going on through our own reactivity. When we're not being mindful externally, often it prompts a reaction, a certain reactivity in the mind, and that can be the trigger for us to then pay attention. There's a common psychological understanding that those qualities we're most reactive to in others are very often the very same qualities we're not accepting in ourselves. Now, how are we when we're with someone who is very angry? You know, or manifesting a lot of greed. What's going on in our own minds in those moments? Are we simply noticing, oh, anger is arising in that person. Greed is arising in that person. Or are we caught up in some reactive judgment? Times of our own reactivity to what's arising or what's happening in other people, our own reactivity can serve as a mindfulness bell for us. It can remind us, yes, in that moment, I'm not being mindful externally. I'm not simply paying attention to what's arising in others. I'm caught in my own reactions. So there's a lot to learn at those times. We can pay attention when we're reactive to what is arising in someone else. We can pay attention in several ways. First, and what often serves as the wake-up call, we can be mindful of our own reactive state. So we pay attention to it rather than simply be lost in it or be identified with it. Maybe it's impatience, you know, with others, or anger at others, or fear, whatever it may be. So the first thing is to become mindful of our own reactive state. The second step then, having awakened a bit, we can then apply mindfulness externally and really practice noticing mindfully, which means without reaction, without judgment, oh, anger has arisen in that person, greed has arisen in that person, with an open, even mind. Third, we can take a look at whether, in fact, we are reactive, judgmental about these states in ourselves. You know, when we're very reactive to states in others, can we turn our attention back and have a little self-inquiry? How are we with those very same states when they arise within us? Are we accepting or are we not accepting? 
So first note the reactivity, then become mindful externally of what's arising in others. Third is seeing whether we're reactive to these states in ourselves. And lastly, we can pay attention to what happens as we settle into mindfulness. So I'll give you just an example of this. Something I've noticed in my own mind on retreat, sometimes, you know, be in a retreat situation, and I might notice some judgment in my mind about someone I see who's, at least in my eyes, not being mindful, you know, or even being somewhat disruptive. Because there's a great irony in this situation. Because in those very moments, I'm doing the very thing I'm judging. Because in those very moments of judging, I'm not being mindful. And yet the judgment is about someone else not being mindful. What happens usually, because I've had enough experience with this, it doesn't take long to see what's going on in my mind. The, the, my own reactivity kind of triggers the mindfulness bell quite quickly. And at least in that situation, it just smiled at the mind. You know, it's just watching the mind do this thing and seeing it as an impersonal habit pattern of mind. And so it comes to a place of acceptance. Oh, this is what happens. This is the state that's arising. So in this, there's this very skillful interweaving of mindfulness internally, mindfulness externally. This emphasis on internal and external in the sutta helps to keep our practice and helps to keep our lives in balance. We don't become overly self-absorbed or overly self-centered. So mindfulness externally, keeping the balance, helps weaken the familiar patterns of yogi mind. I'm sure you've all had some bouts of yogi mind, where small things, really small things, can become wildly exaggerated. You know, we lose all sense of perspective. There are many stories of yogi mind, but that's another talk. Contemplating externally not only keeps us in balance so we don't have this kind of total self-absorption, but we're paying attention in some way. We're enlarging the context of our practice. It also helps to keep us attuned to how our actions are affecting others. So we're not just lost in what we're doing, but we're actually paying attention. We're mindful the feelings and mind states externally. So we see, we're attuned, we're aware, we're perceptive in a mindful way, in a non-reactive, non-judgmental way of these states as they arise in other people. We're paying attention. So the last part of this instruction, of this line, contemplate internally, contemplate externally, and then it says contemplate both internally and externally. Now this is not just a simple repetition. And Venerable Analio, you know, whose book I've been referring to a lot, he has a very interesting analysis of what this last part means. Contemplating both internally and externally 
means we should contemplate experience, be mindful of experience, without taking it to be either one's own or another's, but to see the experience just in itself. So, for example, internal mindfulness would be, I'm experiencing a pleasant feeling. External mindfulness would be, he or she is experiencing a pleasant feeling. Contemplating both, the understanding would be, there is a pleasant feeling. So in this way of mindfulness, we break down the boundaries. We dissolve the boundaries of self and other. It's simply the experience of phenomena independent of any ownership. This feeling is arising. This mind state is arising. These sensations are arising. This begins to very much deepen our understanding of the selfless nature of all phenomena. All of this is this first line of the refrain. Contemplate internally, contemplate externally, contemplate both. The second line of the refrain, and again it's something the Buddha repeated many times, so there's something of value and importance in it. He tells us to contemplate the nature of arising the nature of passing away, and both arising and passing away, of feelings of the mind. Contemplate the arising of feelings, the passing of feelings, both arising and passing. Contemplate the arising of the mind, the passing away of the mind, both the arising and passing away. There was a very famous Burmese Sayadaw uh, from the early 20th century. His name was Lady Sayadaw. And he was a great um, meditation master and a great scholar. He wrote some wonderful books, uh, many manuals of Buddhist teaching uh, that are very, very clear and precise. Um, He said that not seeing arising and passing away of phenomena. Not seeing that is ignorance. While seeing all phenomena as impermanent is the doorway to all stages of insight and awakening. So this is key. Not seeing the arising and passing of phenomena is ignorance. And seeing the truth of change, of impermanence, is the doorway to all insight and awakening. Now we've talked a lot about becoming mindful and noticing the impermanent nature of the feelings as they come. And you've been practicing this a lot, of noticing how the pleasant feelings come and go, the unpleasant feelings come and go, nothing is lasting. And what's so important, and this is, the, this is the tenor of the instructions in this sutta, it's not enough to know this intellectually. Because it's not difficult to conceptually understand, yeah, these feelings are coming and going. The transformative insight happens when we are seeing directly for ourselves in the moment. We're seeing them change. That is how the insight deepens in our lives. It's from that direct seeing in the moment, the truth of this. We can also contemplate the impermanence, the arising and passing away of the mind as it's conditioned by the different wholesome and unwholesome roots. Now, the Pali word samsara means, or it's 
translated as wandering on or continuing on or evolving. And of course, samsara traditionally refers to our wandering through all the realms of existence, you know, over many lifetimes. So that's the traditional classical meaning of samsara, this endless wandering. But we can also see this same process at work within a single day or even a single hour. How many different mind worlds do we create from one hour to the next? You know, we're happy, we're sad, we're bored, we're excited, we're lonely, we're calm, we're interested, we're angry, we're fearful, we're joyous. All of these mind worlds are coming into being and passing away. By contemplating, and contemplating here doesn't mean thinking about, it means being mindful of in the moment, by contemplating the rising and passing away of each of these mind states, we begin to free ourselves both from identification with them and also reaction to them. So we can contemplate the impermanence of the mind, the impermanence of mind states in several ways. When we are focusing on their arising nature, we emphasize those moments of awareness when these mind states or these emotions first appear. Anger arises, desire arises, calm arises. You know, we're going along and we're mindful of that moment, of them arising in the mind. And we can further deepen our insight into their impermanent, conditioned, arising nature when we notice what triggers the arising of them in the mind. Because then it gets very clear, their appearing nature. So one example of this, which I'm sure you're familiar with, and it has to do with noticing the relationship of thought to emotion. Because very often, thoughts are the trigger for emotions to arise. So just think, in the time that you've been here, Have you noticed what I call time thoughts? You know, the time thoughts that arise on retreat. So you're sitting or walking and a certain thought comes two more weeks or two more months or five more months, however long you're planning to stay. And depending how you're feeling about your practice in the moment, those thoughts could trigger restlessness, despair, loneliness, or they could trigger joy, they could trigger energy, they could trigger ardency. But what happened? It was just a thought, and the thought triggered the arising of a particular mind state, a particular emotion. It's very helpful to watch that process. Or it might be the thought or an image you have of a certain person, either someone you love a lot or someone you're having difficulty with. And we see how that thought or image triggers an emotion and mind state. By noticing the trigger point and the resultant emotion, We are following the Buddha's instructions here of noting the arising aspect of phenomena, the arising nature of the mind states. And to the degree that we can see things as they arise, 
to the degree that we are aware and mindful of them arising, we stay free in the flow of changing experience. We can also be mindful of the passing away aspect, emphasizing the awareness of those moments when these different mind states fade away or disappear. We can do this with anything. I found one one in particular, a very helpful contemplation. And that is becoming mindful of the passing away of desire. There's a very liberating aspect to this, to this mindfulness. So we are aware when desire is in the mind, the wanting mind, you know, for whatever. It could be a food fantasy, it could be a sexual desire, it could be, could be a desire for a good meditative state. Notice when desire is there, the energy that quality of wanting and noting desire, 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 and then particularly pay attention to the moment when the desire leaves. It's an illuminating moment because it reinforces our understanding and our insight that desire also is impermanent. Now what makes this so powerful is that very often in the throes of desire we have the feeling that the only way to become fulfilled is to gratify it. And yet when we're mindful of the passing away of desire, 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 it's gone, we realize that the great truth of impermanence will resolve that desire. We don't actually have to gratify each one that arises to come to a sense of completion. We can wait it out. And I'm sure you've had this experience. When you notice that moment of desire disappearing, the sense of relief. It's like being let out of the grip of something. And that feeling of release the release from the wanting, the, the grasping mind, that sense of the relief brings about this quality of ease. And all of this is coming about through contemplating the passing away, the passing away moment. We can do it with desire, we can do it with all other mind states that arise in our minds. The more often we see the passing away aspect, and this is a practice, it's practicing focusing on the passing away nature of mind states and emotions. The more we see that aspect, the less driven we are by them. the more we see the passing away of mind states and emotions, it brings about the space in our minds for us to be with them without fear and without grasping. So it really brings about this place of much greater freedom in the experience of our emotions. Contemplating both the arising and the passing away of phenomena, of sensations, of feelings, of mind states. 
contemplating both the arising and the passing away of them, in its deepest level, leads to the highest stages of insight and realization. And it's expressed very simply in words that are found many times in the Buddha's discourses. It's one sentence. You know, that when people would hear the sentence, often they would get enlightened. So here's your chance. <laughs> Whatever has the nature to arise has the nature to cease. Whatever is of the nature to arise, which is everything we experience, whatever is of the nature to arise is of the nature to cease. If we could open to this fully, if we could sink into this, drop into this awareness fully, and our practice is to see it over and over again, we would be free of attachment and clinging to anything at all. If we really knew deeply, integrated that knowing in ourselves. Whatever is of the nature to arise is also of the nature to cease. And this is why the Buddha made such a remarkable statement in one of the verses in the Dhammapada, And it's really a striking statement. He said, it's better to live a single day seeing the momentary rising and passing of phenomena than to live a hundred years without seeing it. That's remarkable to me. Because what does that statement say about what we value in our lives? and what choices we're making, and where we put our energy. He's saying it's better to live a single day and seeing the truth of impermanence on this very momentary level, to see that all phenomena are rising and passing moment to moment to moment to moment. Better to live a single day seeing that than a hundred years with all the other things we might do and not see it. Because it's through the seeing of this impermanence, this momentariness, that we actually can free our minds from attachment and from clinging. So the refrain teaches us with regard to feelings and the mind to be mindful internally, to be mindful externally, to be mindful of both, to contemplate the nature of arising, the nature of passing away, the nature of both arising and passing away. Now the next line of the refrain, it's the next line of instruction, answers an unspoken question, which is, well, just how much mindfulness do we need? Well, the Buddha goes on to say, he answers it for us. He says, mindfulness that there is a feeling, no mindfulness that there's a pleasant, unpleasant, or mindfulness of the mind is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. That's the degree to which we need to cultivate our mindfulness. To the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. So what does bare knowledge mean? It means observing what's arising or knowing what's arising objectively without getting lost in association, without getting lost in judgment, evaluation, analysis. Or when we do get lost, to simply become mindful with bare knowledge of those states themselves. Bare knowledge is the simple and direct knowing of what's present without 
making up stories about our experience. But as you've probably noticed, we have this powerful tendency of storytelling about what's happening. There's a tension in my jaw. It's an unpleasant feeling. I'm such an uptight person. And then we go off on that. Or maybe the mind is very calm. Calm. Pleasant feeling. That's all that's happening. But we make up a story. Oh, I'm such a good yogi. My practice is really getting someplace now. And on and on about every little experience. The mind goes into an interpretation, a story about it. The Buddha is saying, simplify We just need mindfulness to the extent necessary for bare knowledge of what's arising. Instead of analyzing why different emotions are coming, kind of getting into a whole psychological history of what happened and why these things are arising, all that's needed is bare knowledge of the presently arising mind state. There's desire present, there isn't. There's ill will present, there isn't. There's love present, there isn't. Whatever it may be. So we're mindful just to the extent necessary for bare knowledge. What's interesting about this level of awareness is we see that this bare knowing of what's arising is effortless because knowing is the very nature of the mind itself. And we see this so clearly with sound. A sound arises and when we're undistracted the sound is known spontaneously, effortlessly, in the very moment that it appears. There's no effort required, oh, I need to hear it. You know, and we do some mental gymnastics in order to hear it. No, if we're sitting, we're undistracted. Sound arises, it appears, it's known, without any effort at all. This is that mirror-like quality of the mind that simply knows what it is that's appearing. We see this in the sensations, in the walking and moving about. When we're undistracted, there's no particular effort needed to know. Things are being known spontaneously when we're present. So this bare knowing the Buddha was talking about is not something we have to create, but rather it's something to come back to. There's one mantra that was very helpful to me in my practice and has been and still is. When I feel my mind striving in some way, you know, struggling or not at ease, I use the mantra, I remind myself, It's already here. It's already here. What I'm looking for is already here, which is that bare knowing. The awareness is already here, and we simply have to come back to it. So again, it's really a question of simplifying This one teacher, uh, IMS teacher, Narayan, who wrote this wonderful little book. It's really little. It's about that big. And it's mostly pictures, drawings. But the drawings just have one line or two line little captions. And basically the whole book is when walking, just walk. When standing, just stand. When eating, just eat. When reaching, just reach. When, When doing whatever we're doing, Just do it. And I found that really helpful as the reminder 
yeah, when breathing, just breathe. It doesn't take any special effort to be aware when we're present. So first the Buddha said, establish mindfulness just to the extent necessary for bare knowledge. And then he said, just to the extent necessary for continuous mindfulness. So this implies a certain quality of right effort. And it's not the effort to know, because that's spontaneous. It's the effort to come back to bare knowing when we're lost. And this practice of mindfulness, of coming back, is common to all the traditions of Buddhism, this quality of right effort. One of the great Dzogchen masters of the last century, Tulko Urgin, he said, there is one thing we always need, and that is the watchman named mindfulness, the guard who is on the lookout for when we get carried away by mindlessness. So this is, this is common to all the traditions of Buddhism. We need mindfulness, we need that right effort to come back to the simplicity of bare knowing. There's more in the refrain. But I think... Uh, Maybe we'll just stop now. Uh, Maybe end with the understanding that from this repeated practice of coming back to bare knowledge, coming back from our wanderings to the present moment, we build a certain momentum of mindfulness so that at a certain point it starts to happen by itself. You know, whatever we repeatedly practice, the more we practice it, the more effortless it becomes. And it could be learning a musical instrument, it could be a sport, any endeavor, any discipline, as we practice it, as we make the effort to keep coming back, to the task at hand, whatever it may be, at a certain point, it starts to flow on by itself. And as this continuity of bare knowing builds strength, as we keep coming back to the simplicity and spontaneity of bare knowing, our mindfulness becomes more and more panoramic And we begin to tune in to the changing nature of all phenomena. The process of things becomes more noticeable than the content. We become aware of the process of change. We become aware of the flow of phenomena. And this leads to the last line of the refrain, which I'll just mention you know, in closing, and it it really is the fruit of our practice. Through this panoramic awareness of mindfulness developed to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness, as we do that and we drop into the awareness of the process of change, then one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That's really the Buddha's statement, his expression, his declaration of freedom. This is the result of our practice. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. So let's sit for a few minutes.
The human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest gem. Cherish your body. It is yours this one time only. The human form is one with great difficulty. It is easy to lose. All worldly things are brief, like lightning in the sky. This life you must know as the tiny splash of a raindrop, a thing of beauty that disappears even as it comes into being. Therefore, set your aspirations and make use of every day and night to achieve them. This talk was given by Joseph Goldstein at Forest Refuge on March 24, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.